0: Nick, do you think that they're going to kick me out of fellowship next year when they realize that I don't know how to ultrasound?
1: Fay, hey, I have just the perfect resource for you. Check out the OBG Project's second trimester ultrasound atlas. Once you find your pictures, you can take a look at the OBG Project and they'll show you normal and abnormal images so you know exactly what you're looking for. I promise you'll look like a superstar.
0: That sounds great. So the OBG Project is also offering fourth-year residents a whole year of their subscription process, OBG First, absolutely free, where you have access to the OBG Second Trimester Ultrasound Atlas, as well as your very own library where you can store readings that you want to go back to.
1: Again, check out our website, creagsovercoffee.com. Look in the sidebar, figure out how you can get OBG First with the Second Trimester Ultrasound Atlas, absolutely free for one year as a chief resident.
0: guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creags Over Coffee. Today we will be tackling a very big topic, which are the torch infections.
1: Get ready, because this is a marathon. So... Learning objectives for today, number one, we're gonna talk about the different TORCH infections and their effects on pregnancies. Number two, we'll talk about which TORCH infections we screen for in the United States. And lastly, number three, we'll discuss the evaluation and management of congenital abnormalities that can occur from these infections. Faye, what is TORCH?
0: All right, so TORCH stands for toxoplasmosis, other, which is another way of saying syphilis and parvo B19, rubella cytomegalovirus and herpes simplex virus so Nick let's start off with the first one let's talk about toxo what exactly is that
1: toxoplasmosis is a parasitic infection it's caused by a protozoan toxoplasma gondii and the primary infection in pregnancy meaning first-time infection in pregnancy can cause congenital disease In the United States, about 11% of the population over the age of 6 years old has been infected with toxo. It's usually a foodborne infection or a zoonotic, meaning coming from an animal infection. Most people with this think about a pregnant lady scooping up cat poop or changing the litter box, but this is really only a concern if you have a cat that's both indoor and outdoor. An indoor-only cat is likely not going to be exposed to toxo. You can also get exposed to toxoplasmosis by eating undercooked and or contaminated meat, like pork or lamb. Um, you can get it from shellfish, or you can even get it from drinking unpasteurized goat's milk, which is not something that you usually encounter in the United States, but if you're living somewhere like upstate New York or Vermont, maybe you do encounter occasionally. It's a parasite, um, and symptoms can include fever, malaise, night sweats, myalgias, and hepatosplenomegaly. Faye, let's move on to the other.
0: Yeah, so others is basically syphilis and parvovirus B19. Um, There are some people who may include varicella in this category as well, but we're going to stick with syphilis and parvo B. So syphilis is caused by the spirochete treponema pallidum, and it's usually transmitted sexually. For more information on syphilis, go ahead and go on to our syphilis episode where we talk about all of its manifestations. Parvovirus B19 causes what's been colloquially known as Fitts disease or Exanthema Erythema Infectiosum. It usually causes a mild rash which gives a slapped cheek look in children but can also affect adults and it can also cause fevers and it's usually transmitted through respiratory secretions often seen in people who are potentially primary school teachers or who um, take care of children in daycare. Very rarely can this cause a transient aplastic crisis, and this is usually in those who already have underlying hemoglobinopathies. All right, Nick, let's move on. What about rubella?
1: So rubella is a disease that's caused by a virus um, and has been eliminated essentially from the United States since 2004. There are still cases that occur in the United States, but all come from people traveling outside of the United States and coming into the country. The manifestations of rubella are initially a rash, um, starting on the face and then spreading to the rest of the body. You can also have mild fevers and myalgias associated with rubella. You can get a diagnosis if the mother is not rubella immune, i.e. when you do a rubella screening test, you look at the IgG antibodies and the IgG is negative, but the IgM is positive and the patient additionally has symptoms. You should prevent rubella by vaccination prior to pregnancy with the MMR vaccine, which you can hear more about in our vaccines episode. How about CMV, Faye?
0: So CMV is caused also by a virus, and this can affect anyone and cause mononucleosis symptoms so these symptoms in healthy adults include things like fatigue sore throat muscle aches fever it's really less likely to cause those other symptoms that we think about like those enlarged lymph nodes and enlarged spleen the incidence of primary cmv infection in pregnant women in the u.s is actually quite low it's about 0.7 to 4 percent and lastly let's talk about hsv nick
1: yeah yeah so herpes simplex, or HSV, is caused by either HSV-1 or HSV-2, two different viruses, um, and you know this from causing cold sores in the mouth or genital sores. We've talked about HSV before in our sexually transmitted infection series. Fay, now that we've talked through the torch infections, let's talk about screening for torch infections, because we certainly test for some of these things, but not for other things, Right.
0: Yeah, certainly. So in pregnant women, as you all probably know, we do routinely screen for things like syphilis and immunity to rubella in the United States. In other countries, pregnant women may also be screened for toxoplasmosis, though this is less common in the United States, so we don't routinely screen for them. Really, the reason that we don't screen all infants for torch infections is that It's a pretty expensive test, and it really has poor diagnostic yield in infants that are asymptomatic. If an infant does have a specific congenital infection or other issues, initial evaluation actually doesn't even start with the initial torch titers unless there's a high clinical suspicion for one of the torch diseases. We've talked about screening. We've talked about what the TORCH infections are, Nick. Let's go ahead and talk about what the infections do and what the effects are on the babies and why we care so much.
1: Absolutely. So let's start with toxo. Toxo can have congenital transmission occur in about 20 to 50% of patients who are affected and do not have subsequent treatment. The later in gestation that an infection occurs, the more likely that transmission will occur. However, an earlier infection is usually associated with more severe infection or symptoms in the fetus. So again, later in gestation, more likely to transmit, but earlier in gestation, more severe effects. Most infected fetuses, though, don't have any signs of infection at birth, but up to 90% can develop sequelae later in life. They can get things like chorioretinitis, which can result in severe visual impairment. They can have hearing loss they can have neurodevelopmental delays that can sometimes be severe. Other signs of congenital infection of toxoplasmosis can include rash, hepatosplenomegaly, ascites, fever, periventricular calcifications on ultrasound, ventriculomegaly, and seizures. How about syphilis, Faye?
0: So syphilis has many manifestations, as we've already learned from our syphilis lecture. Syphilis can be divided into early congenital syphilis as well as late congenital syphilis. So early is usually arbitrarily described as onset before two years of age. So 60 to 90% of newborns with congenital syphilis are actually asymptomatic at birth. But of those that are symptomatic, they usually have very distinct symptoms. So these include hepatomegaly, jaundice nasal discharge, which is actually known as syphilitic rhinitis or snuffles. They can also have a rash, which is usually small red or pink spots, as well as generalized lymphadenopathy and or skeletal abnormalities. These babies can also be born with CNS syphilis, which means that you are able to isolate syphilis from the CSF. Otherwise symptomatic central neurosystem syphilis involvement is rare because of the fact that we usually treat with penicillin. but. CNS involvement can result from untreated disseminated syphilis, and this would usually be seen as acute syphilitic leptomeningitis, which usually occurs within the first year of life, or they can develop chronic meningovascular syphilis, which is usually at the end of the first year, and this is usually seen as hydrocephalus, cranial nerve palsies, papilledema, optic atrophy, and also neurodevelopmental regression and or seizures. And finally, these babies can have long bone abnormalities um, which may be associated with pathological fractures or pain. And these are usually bilateral, symmetric, and most frequently involve the femur, humerus, and tibia. In terms of late congenital syphilis, which is onset after two years, these are the things that I think we have have talked about that you see in your um, step one, step two studying. So these things include very distinct facial features um, as well as things like Hutchinson teeth and gummas. So your facial features include things like frontal bossing, saddle nose, a short maxilla, and a protuberant mandible. In terms of the eyes, you can have interstitial keratitis, glaucoma, corneal scarring, optic atrophy. In terms of your ears, you can have sensory neural hearing loss, as well as Hutchinson teeth, which are these hypoplastic, notched, widely spaced permanent teeth, as well as mulberry molars, which is virtually pathognomonic for congenital syphilis. And finally, you can have a lot of other things like gummas and intellectual disabilities, as well as that anterior bowing of the shins called saber shins. Treatment for syphilis is, of course, with penicillin. um, And we talk about the other types of treatments in our actual episode previously. Unfortunately, for congenital syphilis, a lot of these other symptoms really are just supportive treatment. All right, Nick, let's move on to Parvo B19 because I feel like we've spent a long time on syphilis.
1: Yeah. So... Parvo, um, again, is one of these things that you look for an acute infection. And after an acute infection, the rate of maternal fetal transmission is somewhere between 17 and 33%. Parvo B19 can be associated with spontaneous abortion, which occurs in about 8 to 17% of pregnancies before 20 weeks, or fetal loss, um, about 2 to 6% in those after 20 weeks. You can also have things such as hydrops, fatalis and stillbirth. The fetus is more vulnerable to disease transmission and severe complications in the second trimester because the disease can cause changes in fetal hematopoiesis that primarily occurs during this period. So again, the second trimester is really the most vulnerable time period. Hydrops is not likely to occur if you're not seeing it more than eight weeks after the infectious time period. Um, so that's another thing to kind of look for in terms of your surveillance when somebody's known to have parvo B19. So diagnosis-wise, moms who are IgM positive for parvo B19 after having an infection and being tested for it should be monitored for possible fetal infection. That can be diagnosed by a PCR of the amniotic fluid obtained by amniocentesis, and this should definitely be considered if you're seeing high drops on the ultrasound. Serial ultrasounds and suspected or surveillance for parvovirus B19 fetal infections should be done every one to two weeks for about eight to 12 weeks after that parvo B19 exposure. Doppler assessment can also be done in the fetal middle cerebral artery to measure the peak systolic velocity, again, Remember from your MFM rotations that a fetus that has anemia is going to have less viscous blood overall, and so that blood will flow faster. So a high middle cerebral artery velocity in systolic phase is going to flow faster and be suggestive of anemia. Fetal death can occur, though, even without hydrops fatalis, so there's still a role for monitoring here. If there's a suspicion for severe fetal anemia, then fetal blood sampling and intrauterine transfusion should be done. All right, I think that's parvo, Faye. How about rubella now?
0: In terms of rubella, I think we've kind of figured out from talking about the other torch infection that while there's an infection, that's different from having the syndrome, which is the sequelae from the infections. So the incidence of congenital rubella syndrome depends on the timing of infection and can be as high as 80 to 85% if maternal rubella is acquired in the first trimester. And really there's very little risk after 18 to 20 weeks, though um, a rubella maternal infection can still lead to things like fetal growth restriction. In that first trimester time period, maternal rubella infection can lead to fetal death in utero. It can also lead to preterm delivery or congenital defects. And the congenital defects that we usually hear about are things like sensoneural deafness, cataracts. Cardiac disease, this blueberry muffin rash, which is that very classic manifestation that we've all learned on step one. But really, it can affect every single fetal organ. And much like some of the other infections that we talked about, it can be asymptomatic when the baby is first born, making it very difficult to diagnose. Unfortunately, if it does go undiagnosed, later manifestations or sequelae include things like the hearing loss that we talked about, endocrine disorders, eye problems, and also progressive panencephalitis. So now that we've talked about rubella, what about CMV?
1: So there are a number of ways that CMV can be vertically transmitted, so to speak. You could have exposure to contaminated genital tract secretions at delivery. You could have exposure via breastfeeding. But really the most devastating and most important for us are those that occur prior to birth as a result of transplacental infection after a primary or a secondary infection with CMV. This is the most common congenital infection. About somewhere between 0.2 to 2.2% of all neonates will be infected with CMV. But the overall risk of transmission to the fetus with primary maternal CMV infection is somewhere around 30 to 40%. The rate of vertical transmission based on trimester is about 30% in the first trimester. 34 to 38% in the second trimester and 40 to 72% in the third trimester. So, more likely to be transmitted in the third trimester. However, just like we talked about earlier with Toxo, even though the transmission occurs later or is more likely to occur later, the most serious effects occur in the first trimester if there's transmission during that time period. Most infants with congenital CMV, surprisingly enough, are asymptomatic at birth, but the clinical findings of congenital CMV can include jaundice, petechiae of the skin, thrombocytopenia, hepatosplenomegaly, growth restriction, myocarditis, hydrops, that's non-immune in nature, microcephaly, intracranial calcifications, sensorineural hearing loss, which is probably the most common sequelae overall, chorioretinitis, and seizures. Ultimately, congenital CMV infection can cause long-term neurodevelopmental disabilities like cerebral palsy, intellectual disabilities, visual impairment, and lifelong seizures. All right, Faye, again, we're back to the H in our torch. How about HSV?
0: So our last infection, HSV, occurs in one out of every 3,000 to 10,000 live births and can cause very serious morbidity and mortality. It doesn't necessarily lead to a ton of sequelae, But the reason that we worry about HSV is that it can lead to um, neonatal death. And transmission can occur in one of three ways. Intrauterine, which is quite rare. It's only about one in every 250,000 deliveries. It can occur perinatally, which is when the fetus sees the HSV present in the genital tract of the pregnant woman. Or it can occur postnatally, which is about 10% of neonatal HSV. This is when a caretaker... Um, either the mother or someone else has active HSV and they come in close contact with a newborn infant. Manifestations occur in three main categories. There's localized, which is skin, eye, and mouth, or known as localized SEM. Then there is CNS, with or without skin, eye, and mouth involvement. And finally, disseminated disease. So localized manifestations occur in about 45% of neonatal HSV, and there's a very high risk of progression to CNS involvement and disseminated disease, which is why it is so important to start treating these babies when you first see localized skin, eye, and mouth disease. These usually are seen as coalescing or clustering vesicular lesions. In the eye, they can actually be asymptomatic or just you can see lots of watering and crying from that apparent eye. If a neonate does have skin, eye, and mouth disease, they should undergo evaluation for CNS and disseminated disease by the pediatrician. If none is found, then you should treat the localized infection early to prevent this dissemination. The second manifestation is CNS manifestation, and this can occur with or without skin, eye, and mouth involvement. And this is in about a third of neonatal manifestations of HSV. This can lead to seizures, lethargy, irritability, tremors, poor feeding, temperature, dysregulation, and also you can feel a full anterior fontanelle. When you suspect that a neonate does have CNS HSV, you should get a lumbar puncture and send the CSV for evaluation for HSV. And acyclovir should be started as empiric treatment if you suspect this. And finally, about a quarter of neonates will have disseminated HSV, which looks basically like sepsis. It can affect every single organ, and the mortality exceeds 80% in untreated disseminated neonatal HSV. The diagnosis of disseminated disease is often difficult because it presents very much like sepsis, and most people will think that this baby has some kind of bacterial cause of their sepsis and start with antibiotics instead of acyclovir. All right, Nick, so we have gone through all of the TORCH infections as well as all of their manifestations in babies. I know we didn't go over full treatment for these babies because we are OBGYNs and not pediatricians, so we're going to leave that to our pediatric colleagues, but let's go ahead and summarize.
1: Okay, so we start off defining TORCH, which again is an acronym standing for toxoplasmosis, other containing syphilis and parvovirus B19, rubella, cytomegalovirus, and herpes simplex. For maternal side of things in terms of infections, Toxoplasmosis is caused by the parasite Toxoplasma gondii, and a primary infection in pregnancy can be the cause of congenital disease. This is usually foodborne or zoonotic. Again, think of the indoor-outdoor cat that you're changing the litter box for, but you can also get it from eating undercooked meats, shellfish, or unpasteurized milk. It's a parasite, so causes fever, malaise, sweats, hepatosplenomegaly.
0: We then talked about syphilis and parvo B19. Syphilis is caused by the spirochete treponema pallidum, and it's usually transmitted sexually. Parvo B19, on the other hand, causes Fitz disease and leads to viral illness with fever and rash, and very rarely can cause transient aplastic crisis.
1: Rubella is also caused by a virus, though it's been eliminated from the United States since 2004. You can encounter it in traveling patients. This manifests as a rash that starts in the face and ultimately spreads to the rest of the body, along with mild fever and myalgias. Diagnose this when there's a positive IgM but negative IgG in the mom.
0: CMV is also caused by a virus that can affect anyone and cause symptoms like mononucleosis.
1: Finally, herpes simplex can be caused by one of two viruses, HSV-1 or HSV-2, and cause cold sores in the mouth or genital sores.
0: In the United States, we routinely screen for syphilis and immunity to rubella, and in other countries, pregnant women are also screened for toxoplasmosis.
1: In terms of effects on infants, toxoplasmosis may have congenital transmission in about 20 to 50% of those who aren't treated. Remember that the later in gestation that the infection occurs, the more likely transmission will occur, but earlier infections are associated with more severe sequelae.
0: Congenital syphilis can be divided into two categories, early as well as late, arbitrarily defined as before or after two years of age with onset. Early congenital syphilis will lead to things like hepatomegaly, jaundice, syphilitic rhinitis, rash, and also CNS syphilis, as well as some long bone abnormalities. Late congenital syphilis is really what is associated with those things that we learned on step one, like those facial features like frontal bossing, saddle nose, um, as well as Hutchinson teeth and saber shins.
1: Parvovirus B19 infection is diagnosed with a mom who's IgM positive. Again, the monitoring period for parvovirus B19 is about 8 to 12 weeks after the exposure where you're doing serial ultrasounds to monitor for fetal anemia Hydrops Fatalis.
0: In terms of rubella, we need to remember that infection can be as high as 80 to 85%, especially if maternal rubella is acquired in the first trimester, and there's little risk of congenital rubella after 18 to 20 weeks, though it may still lead to things like fetal growth restriction. Congenital rubella can look like deafness, cataracts, cardiac disease, as well as a blueberry muffin rash.
1: Cytomegalovirus can be transmitted either transplacentally or it's most dangerous as well as via exposure to genital tract secretions or breastfeeding. It's the most common congenital infection, and like Toxoplasma gondii, it's most commonly transmitted transplacentally in the third trimester, but the most serious sequelae are observed when there's transmission in the first trimester. The classic findings include jaundice, thrombocytopenia and petechiae, hepatosplenomegaly, growth restriction, chorioretinitis, seizures, and sensorineural hearing loss.
0: And finally, in terms of HSV, transmission can also occur within three ways. There's an intrauterine, perinatal, as well as postnatal, with perinatal being the most likely way um, for neonatal transmission. There's also three different types of manifestations, localized, CNS, as well as disseminated disease, and any neonate that is found to have localized infection should be treated immediately so as to prevent CNS and disseminated disease. This is because disseminated disease presents as sepsis and is not always identified right away, as most people will think that the baby has sepsis due to some bacterial cause. Therefore, mortality can exceed 80% in disseminated neonatal HSV. All right, Nick, I think that finally brings us to the end of our torch infection talk.
1: All right, so once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
0: If you enjoy this episode, go ahead and go onto iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review.
1: Find us online on Twitter at Over coffee one on Facebook at Over Coffee, on Instagram at Over Coffee. Or if you love the show, want to sponsor us, get some swag or a shout out, head on over to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash coffee
0: If you want some adjunct materials as well as some charts about all of these torch infections, go ahead and go onto our website, www.kreogsovercoffee.com.
1: And finally, if you have ideas for future episodes, have a correction to today's episode, um, or just want to send us a note of love and support, send us an email, kreogsovercoffee at gmail.com.
0: Also, if you happen to be going to APCO faculty development seminar in January in Bonita Springs, Nick and I will be there giving a workshop on how to make your own medical podcast. So come and check us out if you have time.